All right, it is time for us to get started. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago uh, with James chapter 1. We're in verses 19 through 21 tonight. That's our starting point. That's James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We just had gone through uh, last or a couple weeks ago, just for sake of review, we went through verses 17 and 18, which was talking about that every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Said, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And what we were emphasizing with that passage was the point that God viewed humanity as the best of his creation the absolute best of his creation. And whenever man sinned in Genesis chapter 3, that removed that first fruits from him. And from then on out, the purpose was to bring those people back to God, to reinstate that relationship between the two. And so we were that first fruits, the cream of the crop, if you will. And that brings us down to verse 19. If someone could read verses 19 through 21, please. All right, so starting in verse 19, we see a particular kind of word that is right off the bat. And for those who can remember English class, what is the word wherefore? What kind of word is that? I think I heard someone say it. Is what? A conclusion. Specifically, it's a subordinating conjunction. It's bringing together the thoughts that were mentioned before. It's joining those thoughts together. So what James is saying is, since we were the first fruits of his creatures, since that was our role, our conclusion should be, this is how we should act. He says, since you are the first fruits, he says, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So the idea here is he's saying we need to act as though we're a part of that role act as though we are the first fruits of his creatures. It's emphasizing that since this was God's attitude toward us, let's try to be worthy of that. Now, this is not something that's abnormal for us. We see all throughout our world of how we treat one another better when we're trying to bring a relationship together. I mean, imagine if you were looking down the street and you just saw a young couple going out on a date and the person or one of them was just absolutely berating and hateful and just going off on the other person, you wouldn't think that was a a good situation, would you? You wouldn't think that would be good at all. But far too often in our world, that's how people treat God. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They just want to say they're in a relationship with him. That's it. They just want to say that we are connected to God, but they never even act and put the effort into building that sort of a connection. And so this is what he begins to talk about, is that we are to show forth this attitude, show forth an attitude of love and compassion for God, but also to practice restraint, to practice restraint. I'm sure many of us at one point or another have heard the phrase, you got two ears and one mouth, so do twice as much listening as you do talking. I know I heard that all the time growing up. It didn't quite stick, but that was 
that's something we all hear, and it's a really good piece of advice. Why? Because if I'm listening more than I'm talking, it's very hard for me to go beyond what is an actual acceptable answer. If I am just thinking in my own mind how I feel about a statement or how I think about a statement, it's very easy for me to, instead of responding to what the person said, I'm responding to how their comment made me feel. And those are very different attitudes. I'm supposed to be dealing with the facts that were presented to me, not just how I feel about those facts. So, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why should we be slow to wrath? Is wrath not something that is normal, acceptable? Is that not something that God even himself has expressed wrath before, has he not? So why is this a problem? Why would he even bring this up? Verse 20. Verse 20 is that connecting point, that explanation for the statement. For, conjunction, joining the two thoughts, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now, what did James just do with that word wrath? He had a specific description. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Does that mean that all anger is bad? No. If that were the case, then God himself would be guilty of violating this principle because God expressed anger. Now, even as Christians, we are told to be angry and sin not. And sin not. It's acceptable to be angry about something. However, it's not acceptable to allow that anger to take control. Truth be told, it's not acceptable for any emotion to take control when it comes to how we live our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be sober-minded. We are to be in control of ourselves. Not to be under the influence of anything else Paul would describe. So even something that seems like a good emotion, if it is allowed to be the driving force in our lives, it can become something that is evil. Just think for a moment about those who are addicted to things that are not actually in of themselves bad, but in excessive quantities, it can do harm. I'm sure many of us can say that we absolutely love chocolate cake or some sort of cake or some sort of sweets. A single piece of cake is probably not gonna make you drop dead of a heart attack. However, if you are eating whole cakes every single day, <laughs> that's going to cause harm to your body. It's going to do damage. The same is true with emotions. Emotions are good things. We were made in the image of God, and God himself expresses many of the emotions we read about in Scripture. However, God was not under the control of his emotions. He was the one who created and controlled them. That was a part of his character. And so he teaches us restraint as well. We can look throughout the Scriptures and see how God could have done something, I mean, just imagine Genesis chapter 3, how angry and hurt God would have been for Adam and Eve to sin against him, to pull back their relationship from him purely to elevate themselves, which is exactly what the devil told them was going to happen when they took of that fruit. If we actually think about what took place in Genesis chapter 3, it's really a fascinating study because what the devil tempted Adam and Eve with was saying, you will be as gods. You are going to be elevated because of taking of this fruit. You will be elevated to the level of God. 
So what they were doing by taking of that fruit was rebelling against the authority of God and saying, I want to be the same authority. I want to be able to determine right from wrong. So he, God practiced restraint in seeing that happen and not just saying, okay, fine, we're done, we're starting over. He easily could have done that. That was well within his right to do. What did he tell Adam and Eve? The day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. That was the payment. That was the consequence of taking of that tree. So God would have been well within his rights to just say that's it. But what did he do? He expressed mercy. He expressed love. He expressed restraint by saying, instead, I'm going to offer a way of escape. A true justice. Yes, sir. Oh, that was it. Go ahead. Absolutely. And kind of to add to that thought as well, there's even the psychological studies that have been done when people have excessive anger, and it does reduce your faculties. It reduces your ability to think critically. It's the same kind of situation that might be caused when you are partaking of some substance that reduces your ability to think clearly and to act clearly. Anger is just that same situation. And God has told us consistently to be sober. To be under the control of your, or to be keep yourself under control. Even Paul himself described that he buffeted his body daily, lest he also should become a castaway. He kept track of those kind of things. So what God is, or what James is teaching here specifically, is this idea of restraint. Why? Because the wrath of man, what Don was talking about earlier, where that attitude can begin to flare up and come again and again and again, and. I'm sure all of us have noticed, if you get angry first thing in the morning, how easy is it to blow up at 5 o'clock at night? How easy is that? Because if you don't recenter yourself and keep yourself back under control, it will just continue to build. 
And that's what God consistently is teaching throughout the scriptures. It's interesting to me that the Bible itself is a book of balance. It is a book of balance. And people are not balanced. (laughs) Most of the time, we are not a balanced people. You think about it, for any situation, listen to any debate. I don't care which debate it is. There might be a few that are pretty good. But a political debate, a college debate, you will see someone so misrepresent and go so far to one side of what a person is saying. And then that person, in order to come back from what that guy has said, he even takes an extreme view. That's the situation that mankind falls into. We are either all or nothing. And the Bible tells you, you got to balance. It's not that these things in of themselves are wrong. Anger is not inherently wrong. Joy is not wrong. Happiness is not wrong. But even with something like, as simple as happiness, if we are seeking it to the extent that we are willing to compromise ourselves, that can be a problem. Go ahead. Sorry to keep interrupting. That's no problem. Absolutely. And that it's interesting that the description is made or is being attributed to James, that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And if you actually go through and read the book of Proverbs and read the book of James, they have very similar messages in how they approach it. James, it's a book about restraint. It's a book about living properly. It's a book about keeping in mind the dangers of the world and not allowing those things to run rampant. Same is true with the book of Proverbs. Literally, the book of Proverbs, if you were to simplify it, I guess, it's like a PA for everything that can go wrong in the world. <laughs> it's like, hey, here's the end result. It's like watching the, the, the drug commercials that come on from the government every now and again. You'll see, like, this is the effects of vaping, and they'll have the, the smoke in the area and the dark music, and it's lit very dark, and it tells you the the consequences of this, and you have some fact that'll pop up and say, don't do this because this is what will happen. That's the book of Proverbs in a nutshell. Go ahead. Uh, I'd just like to give one example of somebody keeping their cool uh, when they were in a really bad situation. And a lot of you that are older will probably remember this. It's been several years ago, and maybe you even maybe you've heard of it. But uh, Garland Elkins was uh, on a TV show, it's a Bill Donahue show, and they done everything. They wouldn't let him talk. 
but the man kept his cool the whole time. That really impressed me about him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's a difficult thing to do because there's multiple emotions that take place in a confrontational conversation. And one of the most prevalent is fear. It could be multiple reasons why you have that fear. It could be fear of looking ridiculous. It could be fear of rejection. It could be fear of what this person might do to you. And as a result of that, fear is the quickest emotion from anger. If you go listen to uh, police officers talk about the response in traumatic situations or shooting situations and things of that nature, they tell people when it gets to the, they, the three they have set up is run, hide, fight. And when it gets to that fight section, the police officer will tell you, go full, <laughs> go full force. Because when you're scared, it's very easy to transition that into anger. How do I know this? Try to walk around a corner and someone jump out and surprise you. <laughs> How quickly does that change from fear to anger? Because at first, it's a, it's a shock. Okay, what's happening? I don't know what's happening. I don't know how to respond. Your body's immediately put into fight or flight. And then after that, when you find out what it is, it transitions very angrily. <laughs> I know I have two siblings growing up, and constantly we were harassing each other in one way or another. I, I don't think that you're going to have a family with three kids, and they're not going to try to harass each other. But that was something that was a fairly common situation. And you always had to be aware, how quickly can this person transition? How far can I push this joke before it'll be actually bad? Because once it gets actually bad, mom and dad get involved and no one wants that. But this is the situation we're talking about here is this anger can come so quickly. And James is teaching to keep yourself under subjection, to make sure that you are keeping yourself calm, which is interesting with what Don just said a minute ago with lowering your tone of voice, speaking slower, keeping yourself calm. It's very easy to do if you're listening. If you're actually listening to what's being said, just go online one day, and whether it be YouTube or any social media, and watch one of those street interactions where someone's just interviewing people on the street and it turns into a fight and watch where it all goes south. There's usually two instances where that happens. Either A, someone's not listening to what's being said by either party, that could be done either way, but someone's not listening to what's being said, the person doesn't feel heard, they lash out. The other instance is when someone doesn't know what to say next. (laughs) They don't know what to say next, they're flustered because they don't know what to do, and they transition that into anger because I can't speak now. I don't have any more points to give. So as a result of that, you're going to be talking. I don't want you to continue talking, so I shut you down because I don't have anything else to say. And that's literally the opposite of what James is teaching here. James teaches us that you keep your mouth shut if there's nothing to say. If there's nothing to be able to say in the situation and you're actually listening to what's being said, it's going to prevent this anger from coming. It's going to prevent the situation from getting out of hand. Because when you, especially when you have two parties that are angry, no one's trying to ground the other, that's a situation that gets out of control very quickly. Very, very quickly. Which is interesting, again, as to what Don brought up with the qualifications of elders. As an elder, you are leading over a group of people, and there might be some confrontational situations that come up. And if I'm one that's quick to anger, and I immediately just jump the gun on whatever is said and immediately get angry at the person without first taking the time to consider what's happened, that can get out of hand very quickly. And it's not working the righteousness of God as James just described. Go ahead. You know, uh, 
that to think about the impression you make as a Christian. If you're one of these people that people in the world and people you work with think, oh, that's the guy who loses his temper. Even if you don't say anything uh, inappropriate or use foul language, if you're the guy who flies off the handle, it's not going to reflect well on Christianity or the church. Mm-hmm. It definitely won't. And even to add to that point as well, a point that is unfortunately far too familiar to us, I'm sure every one of us at some point or another has met someone who grew up in an abusive household in one way or another. Whether that be someone who is emotionally abusive, whether that be physically abusive, one way or the other. And one common theme from those households are parents who are quick to anger. I don't like how you're responding, so my only response is to put you down. And what we see as a result of those households is people who are scared of everyone around them. And as a result of that, that hurts them in their future lives as well. So not only does it affect the person that's doing or that's being angry or causing the problem, it affects others as well. And as Christians, we are to be putting others before ourselves. Christians are to be servants, to encourage, to love and good works. Now, how do we do that? By putting the needs of others, by putting the feelings even sometimes of others ahead of how I feel right now. Because it is one of the most satisfying things in the world to be able to just act on that emotion. To act on that emotion. But it's not what's going to be good for the situation. I think about the book of Proverbs where he says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. And then what does the next verse say? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. We as Christians pick our battles very carefully. Why? Why is that important that we pick our battles carefully? Because if we're not careful, we could be putting ourselves in the place of God. Because if I have the attitude of I can fight every single battle, well, that might be my own opinion that I'm fighting and not the Word of God. I could easily jump the gun in that situation. And what Solomon said in that situation in the book of Proverbs where he said, Answer not a fool according to his folly. He said, Lest thou be like him. He says, If you jump the gun just like that fool did, you will be a fool. (laughs) I'm sure that many of us have heard from either political campaigns or from even just playground the attitude of, it takes one to know one. It takes one to know one. James is encouraging these people not to be that. To be able to identify it, yes, but not for that to be your character. And remember, what did we say was going on with this group of people? Who is James writing to? Who is this group of people? the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, Jewish Christians who have been kicked out of their homeland, scattered to who knows where, and what's the message he's teaching them? Let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because, friends, this would have been a very volatile group of people. (laughs) Josh, you know, I've heard the expression, it's not the Bible, obviously, but Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a good point when you think about it when somebody wants to just start throwing out all this garbage don't get in it with them 
they're going to win. They're going to mm-hmm. like it. And the old expression, I think most of us have heard um, that if you uh, wallow in the dirt with the pig, that you're going to get dirty and he'll enjoy it. And so just it's similar to what the Bible says about um, a answer not a fool according to his folly, for he'll be like it. Absolutely. And even to kind of add to that thought as well, what is the purpose of fighting battles? The battles we're discussing. What is the purpose? As Christians, what is our number one goal? A, to get to heaven, and B, to bring others with us. So if I'm fighting a battle, I'm claiming that what I'm doing is on the stance of the Bible. I might be fighting a situation this person has told me, and I am championing the name of Christ. How am I representing Him? How am I representing Him in that situation? Now, some battles need to be fought. False teaching has to be addressed because those are souls at stake. But I have to be careful that I'm not fighting a battle in my own name and claiming it's God's. And so James is trying to encourage these people through this, but it's very interesting where he transitions next. He goes from this point of talking about anger and working the righteousness of God and things of that nature and transitions to the very next point of dealing with hypocrisy. Dealing with hypocrisy. If someone could read verses 22 through 26, please. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man of observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, This one's religion is useless. All right. Taking from this point, he goes from talking about anger and allowing ourselves to be controlled by things that are ungodly, and he transitions to talking about hypocrisy. Now, the Bible is probably the most unfriendly book to hypocrites. I don't care if we're reading the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of James. The Bible is very much against hypocrisy. And interestingly enough, there was a study that was done, I believe it was by Barna. I could be wrong about that, but I believe it was back in 2016, 2017. And they did a study trying to figure out what is the world's biggest gripe with Christianity. What is the world's biggest gripe? Atheists, we're going to take all these atheists and find out what is their number one problem with the church. Take a wild guess what it was. Hypocrisy. Now, some of those were unfair statements because they might say that, well, the church needs to be loving, but they're telling people they're going to hell. Okay, well, if we're talking about a situation where God is speaking, that's not what I'm saying. I'm still following what God has had to say. God's just warning there's consequences to actions. However, there are some very fair statements with regard to that. Very fair statements. And Jesus, James, Paul, all warn consistently against being hypocrites. 
it's necessary for us to actually practice what we believe. When I was at the Memphis School of Preaching, one of our instructors said repeatedly, I think it was probably every other week, if not every week, he said repeatedly, practice and believe what you preach or you are going to tear yourself apart. He said, you will not be a healthy person, you will not be a happy person, and you certainly won't make anyone else the same. He said, you have to practice what you preach and believe what you stand for. Hypocrisy literally means two-faced or one who acts. The word hypocrite is the same word we would use today for English equivalent as an actor. Someone who is playing a role. I am putting on a great performance. I'm sure many of us have seen examples of this where you see a person who maybe in the right context just looks like such a wonderful human being, just a great person, and then you're walking through the line at Walmart and you hear them just cussing somebody out and you say, what on earth? What on earth is going on here? They put on a good face when I was around them, but not to others. There was a comedian I saw on one occasion who he's some sort of a preacher. I'm not exactly sure what he preaches for specifically, but he was just calling people up one day, just trying to call and visit and see how people were doing. And he called this one lady and she answered the phone with a string of vulgarity, just cussing him out. And she said, who is this? And he said, this is so-and-so from the church. Oh, uh, bless the Lord, brother. The textbook definition of hypocrisy. <laughs> that is a textbook definition. But that is not unheard of in our country or in our world or in churches. <laughs> Friends, if we are unbelieving of this book, we need to stop pretending that we do. <laughs> we need to stop pretending that we do. Because if we want to follow what the Lord says, we want to follow what the Lord says. If we want to make excuses, find a way out of it, try to find loopholes for everything, then we're not actually seeking after Christ. We're trying to find how little I can do and follow after Him, which is the exact message of Malachi chapter 1. Where Malachi is speaking to the people, he's telling them, he says, you're asking us, or he said, if I'm a father, where is my honor? He says, you've robbed me. And you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes, your offerings, your sacrifices. He says, offer what you offer to me to your governor and see if he accepts it. They were offering him half at best of what they had, not the best. Their heart wasn't in what they were doing. These would have been the church-going people, but they're not Christians. <laughs> they're not living that proper life. Jesus was very, very strict with this point as well. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. That's Matthew chapter 23. We go to 745, right? Okay. We got plenty of time then. All right. Verses 25 through 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse that the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If we go back and look at the history of the Pharisees and who these men were, their attitude was, at first, very noble. Very noble. We want to bring the old law back. We want to restore the Old Testament to the Jewish nation. We've strayed so far away from it, we want to bring it back. It did not take long for that goal to fall to the wayside. And instead it became, oh, I like this power that I have. I like the praise that people give me. I like people considering me to be a holy man and an expert on all subjects, which if you actually read some of the things they taught, they obviously didn't pay as close attention to the old laws. They acted like they did. And instead, they started making up new laws that could be exclusions of the old law. And they started making new laws, they said, to protect the integrity of the Old Testament. We're going to build a hedge around the old law so that no one can come close to violating it. And instead, they were teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They were putting another God in the place of God, and they violated the very first commandment that God gave them. (laughs) Does that not sound familiar? Friends, we have to make sure that this is the only guide. Not how I think, not how I feel, not how I want things to be, but how God intended them to be. The, go ahead. In James 1, right after he makes the statement, he says, If any man, I think verse 23, if any man be a hearer of the word and not the doer, he's like a natural man who beholds his face in a glass, that is, he looks in a mirror, and he realizes what manner of man he is, and then he goes away and does nothing about it. He uh-huh. says, a man looks in the mirror, maybe he sees that his hair is messed up, and he's got dirt on his face, and he thinks, man, I need to do something about that. And then he just goes away, and he doesn't do it. And uh-huh. so what he's saying is he's comparing it to you have the Word of God talk to you, or you look at the Word of God, and you see problems in your life, and you think, I am change that and then you leave and you don't do it and a good illustration would be I think all of us have had the situation where you come and you listen to a sermon and you think man that hit me right square between the eyes or that we use the term stepped on my toes and you think I gotta do better with that and yeah. you go home and you eat lunch and you forget about it and you move on I mean that's that's James 1 absolutely and it's taking that point and continuing or adding to it a little bit, it's, it's the exact point we read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul is discussing his own attitude. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's emphasizing the point, this isn't about me. This man who beholds his natural face in a glass, he sees what he is. There are two ways to respond to a problem. You either make it worse or you fix it. That's it. A problem doesn't stay the same. (laughs) It only gets worse. If you start off lying, it's going to continue to, you have to tell more lies to cover up that lie and more lies to cover up that lie. It just gets worse and worse and worse. If you're someone who flies off of the handle, we talked about how that gets out of control very quickly. I heard a 
quote on one occasion that it makes me chuckle, but it's kind of a sobering thought too. He says, at your eulogy, people are going to remember you for one of two things, the problems you caused or the problems you solved. (laughs) That's it. We are either going to be blessings to the world, which is what Christians are called to be. See that in Matthew chapter 5, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Supposed to be lighting the path for people to come to Christ. But how we do that is important. Yes, it is sometimes necessary to have confrontational conversations that are very uncomfortable for everyone involved. Yes, it is uncomfortable to have to tell someone they're wrong. But it's also necessary that we encourage one another and promote one another to love and good works. See, it's not either or. You don't have to be a belligerent army church, but you also do not need to be everything is wonderful, everything is accepted, no one's in the wrong, no one makes mistakes, because that's just not what God teaches. That's not what the reality is. And for us to teach that would be the equivalent of a parent teaching the child there's no such thing as danger and then burning their hand on a stove. It's necessary that we have the proper attitude with what we're doing. And remember this audience to whom they're talking about. They're scattered abroad. How hard would it be to trust? How difficult would it be to be able to look someone and say, are you on my side? I don't know if you're going to turn me over to the authorities or if you're going to worship with the name of God with me. He's telling them, practice what you preach. Be the people that you act like you are. And he tells them, verse 26 in particular, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. The worst person you can lie to is yourself. Because eventually, that internal monologue telling you you're wrong goes away. Eventually, there comes a point you are past the point of return because you yourself can't accept the fact that you're wrong. Jiminy Cricket only talks for so long. You can silence that voice very quickly. He's encouraging them to not be this kind of person who separates yourself and pretends to be something that you're not, but rather to be the Christian that we claim to be. And here's the interesting thing about it. We don't have to be perfect people to be what God wants us to be. Now, some people like to take that too far. But we shouldn't be ashamed to say that. We don't have to be perfect people. We just have to be faithful people. Christ relates and emphasizes and gives examples that the church is the bride. It's a relationship. Does every marriage, or is every marriage perfect? Does every marriage have no arguments, no problems at all? No issues that come up? No, I accidentally left the underwear on the floor instead of in the hamper? It's always going to have problems. Why? We're people. We make mistakes. Does that marriage split up immediately the first mistake that happens? It shouldn't. There's some people who have that view, but it shouldn't. 
why do we think that God expects more of us? And that God gives less mercy and grace than we're willing to give. He has told us if we're faithful to Him, if we follow after Him, if we're willing to try to restore that situation and restore that relationship when there's something that's dividing it, that we can continue to walk in the light as He is in the light. We will have that fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us, continuously cleanses us from all sin. Now, just like in an actual marriage relationship, we can leave. We can sever that tie and walk away. But God doesn't want to throw you away. And honestly, He never will. It has been said by countless preachers that I've heard, and it's a very true statement. Where you end up in eternity is not where God sent you. Where you end up in eternity is where you chose to be by your actions, by your commitments, and by who you chose to be faithful to. Josh, um, go ahead. In verse 26, um, I think we, we read over this quickly because we know James so well, but this is deep. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue, if you can't control your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart. So you think you're a religious person, but you're really not. Why? Because you can't control your tongue. And then the result is this man's religion is useless. I was just looking up what the word useless means. It means it amounts to nothing. That is, you're thinking you're a religious person, you're going through the motions, hypocrite, and if you can't control your tongue, he says your religion is worthless. I think I could I could ponder that all night because <laughs> Uh, in the abundance of words, there's sin, and I talk a lot, so uh, <laughs> it's this sort of uh, problem. When you think about bridling your tongue, of course, we're going to get into chapter 3, and he's going to talk a lot more about that, but James talks a lot about the tongue and controlling your tongue, but if you can't do it, if he said you fool yourself, if religion is worthless. Absolutely, and kind of to add to that point as well, I heard a, a guy say on one occasion that he said all the world's most of the world's problems could be solved if people would just learn to keep their mouth shut. He said a lot of problems are just caused for unnecessary reasons. Just go look at a Facebook argument back and forth and tell me how productive that is. People who it's none of their business. It's not their fight to be in. It's not their issue to be in. It usually is a conversation between two people. And then after about four or five messages, you see another person pop up, and then another person pop up, and another person pop up. And then the two people that were arguing, they've already made up. They're good to go. They're gone, and there's still 12 people fighting in the comment section. <laughs> it's important for us to keep our tongue bridled and under control because it is a danger. As Don talked about, we're going to talk about that far more in chapter 3, but specifically he's encouraging them, this is what you need to do. You need to keep this under control because it's dangerous. It can cause problems. And it can lead us to think that, yes, you're absolutely a religious person. You're a wonderful person. You're a great person. No, one can, no one's going to say that you're doing anything wrong because you've fooled yourself into thinking that. 
This is why it's necessary, not for a scare tactic, not to say, oh, well, did, have I lied to myself all this time? Am, am, I, am I religious? Am I doing... No, but if we're following after Christ, we have nothing to fear. But if we know there's something in our lives that's wrong, something that's amiss, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing what's right. And that leads us to our final verse here for this chapter. Verse 27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That sounds incredibly simple in our world. That sounds very, very simple. I remember my dad and I, in 2019, got the chance to go to Europe. And we were touring the Vatican and going through St. Peter's Basilica and St. Paul's Basilica and all this stuff. And I would hear people around me that were like, wow, this has got to be the one true church because there's so much gold and amazing architecture and all of this. And I remember leaning over to Dad and I nudged him for a second. I said, I'm just glad at how simple everything is. I was like, I kind of want to go home. (laughs) Because this is not God. This is simply the actions of man. And the teachings that they were going through, all the different practices and rituals that were made up by men, I, I think back and I say, wow, it's amazing how simple it actually is. And for us, that boggles our minds because we're very, very, very extremists. Very big extremists. And we think there's got to be ceremony and pomp to everything that we do. Instead, God encourages very simple religion. And for sake of time, we're going to have to call it there. But thank you very much for your attention. We'll pick up there next time.